Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrence. Concurrence is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrence is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Well, welcome to today's uh, podcast on antitrust. Uh, my name is Ashwin Barroyan. I'm a partner in Clipper Chances Antitrust Group in Brussels. And we're very fortunate to have with us today Olivier Garçon. Hi. Who is, uh, as everybody will know, everybody who listens to this podcast will know, is the Director General for Competition at the European Commission, and is therefore one of the one of the lead enforcers in the world. Um, we'll get to see whether we really know Olivier as as well as we think in the first couple of questions, and then we'll dive into some some more technical stuff. I'd like to s- talk especially about uh, the DMA today as well, and. People listening to the podcast or viewing the podcast might not know or might know that we've just had a, an excellent session with Olivier and also with Andreas Munt uh, on issues of uh, tech antitrust, uh, on mergers and on the crisis response. So we might, we might go back to some of those topics, but probably focus on the DMA. Great. So are you ready, Olivier? I'm born ready. Okay. <laughs> excellent. So... My, my first question to you uh, would, would be, were you always a believer in antitrust? Or is that more of a recent thing? Did you always believe in the costs? Uh, well, you know, some kids, when they're five, they want to become a doctor or a, or a vet. Or, and I wanted to become an antitrust regulator. <laughs> uh, you don't believe okay. me, you're right. No, I don't. Uh, of course not. I mean... Uh, it's an acquired test, no? Yeah. Antitrust. Nobody wants to become an antitrust regulator or an antitrust lawyer. Actually, I'm sure you didn't want to become an antitrust lawyer when you were five. It's not a young boy dream. But um, later on, when I did my study, I did something that exists only in France. It's called political sciences. It exists everywhere. But the way we do it in France only exists in France. Because you do pretty much everything but political sciences in that uh, university. And, uh, and I did uh, microeconomics and law. Mm. And when you do microeconomics and law, if you're lucky, you discover antitrust, and you discover that it's really the best field into working if you like both law and, uh, and economics. And uh, the intellectual challenge was actually what, what motivated me in the first place. And, um, and I had the chance to, to start my career, and maybe I would have done something else otherwise, um, under the direction of Frédéric Genie. I can tell you that was challenging, <laughs> but that was super motivating as well. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of my very first big investigations was into uh, advertising in France. And it was a known investigation of the uh, then Conseil de la Concurrence, today the authority. And Frédéric was the uh, rapporteur général, so he was leading the investigations. Um, and it was really, uh, I think this is what I decided that I, 
I will do it. This is it. Yeah. Okay. Well, one follow-up question then, just to test that a bit. If you hadn't ended up in antitrusts, where would you have ended up? What would you have done? Uh, well, I ended up in antitrust because I did Sciences Po, as I said. And I did Sciences Po because I had a very, very big arguments with my parents. My parents were both uh, professors. Not something I recommend for anybody. Uh, because my, my dad was doing math and my mum was doing um, uh, French and history and geography. So, um, and what I wanted to do when I was uh, at school, I was, I was having a major in math because I was good in math, but I was not liking math. So uh, what I was really in love with was philosophy. I wanted to become a professor of philosophy. And both my parents said, you know, you're crazy. Professor is a no-go. We're professors, we can tell you. Uh, and, uh, and they discouraged me, and as a result of which I pretty much did what they wanted me to do, which was your school. And I loved it, of course. But if they had not done that, I would probably be teaching philosophy somewhere in the south of France. There you go. Now you're in Brussels. And now I'm far away from the yeah. south of France, uh, and indeed. Yeah. And uh, doing things that have, at some level, some philosophical implications, but, uh, but clearly not philosophy. Okay. Okay, well, so... Clearly now you're um, you're an antitrust enforcer and, and, and one of the one of the leading enforcers in in the world. Um, are you happy to share with the with the audience what you're most proud of so far in your time at DigiComp? And there is a compo another component to that question, which is what are you least proud of? The two come in a, in a oh. tight arrangement. Oh, of course the first one is easier than the mm. second. Mm. Um, I think what I'm the most proud of is, you know, one of my predecessors, Philippe Lowe, used to qualify DigiComp as the Rolls Royce. So he was Brit, so of course the Rolls Royce. Uh, I'm French, so I guess it would be less impressive if I said the Renault, but, uh, uh, but okay, so it's, it's, it's a jewel. And, uh, and you inherit it from your predecessors, and uh, uh, if you're ambitious, you want to better it, but frankly, the challenge is to keep it as it is. And uh, what I'm most proud of is that I think I managed to keep it as it is throughout the COVID, mm -hmm. and that was a challenge, because it's a big organization, it's a thousand people, um, and um, it's an organization that works under constant stress. We were not enough for what we do, if you compare the area we have to take uh, care of and uh, the staffing and you compare to other authorities around the world, it doesn't take uh, to be a genius in math to understand that we were not super well staffed. So it works because, because we have this cohesiveness, this flat organization, uh, which makes that everybody matters. And, uh, and my predecessors were very careful to, to maintain that because this is, this is the key to our success. And it was super challenging to maintain it when we couldn't see each other. Um, so I think it worked, and we sailed through, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. Um, what I'm the least proud of, well, many things, probably. Um, well, one is enough. 
Yes, that's why I'm, I'm thinking hard. Um, it's probably not to have been able to, and it's probably because I was not persuasive enough, um, to obtain any reinforcement for DG Comp uh, in terms of staffing, while throughout the crisis, the COVID crisis in particular, my colleagues in state aid, they improved the output by 300%, 300%, not one single person more. Mm. Uh, and uh, because I just couldn't obtain it. And it's probably the secret is if you perform, well, people do something else. So if we had failed, probably uh, we would have had reinforcement. But that's not who we are in uh, DigiComp. We, we try to deliver even under extreme stress. And that went to the detriment of the health of some of my colleagues. Um, I have shared meetings at midnight on a Saturday during the COVID crisis. And that's okay. I mean, we, we do that in DigiComp. But doing this consistently for two years, mm -hmm. Uh, that goes on your on your health in the end, and uh, we have a level of burnout we have never experienced before, mm. and that I don't I cannot be proud of. Well, you mentioned extreme stress, but that I think is is probably a nice segue into my next topic, which is the DMA. Um, and and we talked about the DMA in the in the panel earlier this afternoon. I understand that, that DigiComp has been having some preliminary discussions with, with stakeholders about the, the upcoming DMA, shall we say. How would you rate, on a scale from 1 to 10, how would you rate your, your confidence in a sort of smooth rollout and enforcement of the DMA in general? 10. 10? Okay, excellent. No, of course, I mean, you know, when you cannot fail, you don't. And, and we cannot fail. And, and the reason why I tell you tell, 10 is, first, I'm super confident in my colleagues and their ability to roll out. I mean, the, the work they've been doing, the work they're doing currently, um, we have had the stuff we needed, but that's the bare minimum. So they are under extreme stress still with this stuff, which is not yet recruited, of course, but we, we are in the process of doing that. Um, but more fundamentally, I, I think there is a, the DMA creates an alignment of incentives. Um, potential gatekeepers, they understand, I mean, some of them even made public statements uh, that they understand they have a special responsibility and they want to make DMA work. Um, we'll see how far this will go, but for the time being, so they engage, they engage early and they are a number of things to do and actually you know the for me the real test for success is now because the nature of the instrument means that a number of things actually most of the things of the issues have to be front-loaded now because when the actual clock will start ticking it will not be time to ask yourself fancy questions so the period we're in now is very 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 similar what I remember from where we had the major regulation as you you have to prepare a lot in advance on many things 
I mean, what will be your criterion uh, for uh, designation, for example? And uh, that needs a number of interactions with the parties. That needs, that's why we are having workshops. So um, the level of engagement is very satisfactory from all sides, I have to say. Um, the level of cohesiveness of the team also, because it's not only about DigiComp, it's also about the colleagues in DigiConnect. They form one single task force from which one single decision will come. So, and they work very well together because they've been working very well together in the making of the DMA before. Um, and again, I mean, the DMA is constructed in such a way that the, the, the firms have an incentive to cooperate, like in mergers. And that makes me very, very confident. Of course, you can always have an accident. Uh, but our track record in putting together new instruments in DigiCon ever since the major reg, I think is quite good. We never failed before, and I hope I will not be the first director general to have to register a failure, uh, uh, which would mean having to, I don't know, postpone the startup of the DMA obligations or whatever. I, I'm confident, 10 out of 10, that this will not be the case. Okay, that's a good rating. <laughs> that's a good rating. And in some ways, you've already an answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. Because uh, you mentioned timelines and the need to front load mm -hmm. um, DMA work. How much scope do you see for things like economic evidence in, in the DMA enforcement, especially within the tight timetables that the DMA uh, provides for? Well, that depends what you're talking about. I mean, the DMA has been conceived to avoid having these lengthy discussions. So, frankly, in these areas, I see zero scope. I mean, there is a reason why we decided we don't want to have to define markets, we don't want to define market power, etc. And so don't even try to come with, <laughs> oh, uh, by the way, uh, on the other hand, there are um, areas in the DMA in which there is scope. Well, first of all, you can disprove or you can try to disprove your designation. And frankly, I don't see how others than with economic evidence you would try to do that. So, of course, uh, there is... Uh, and if you come to qualitative designation, there it will be only about economic evidence. So there are areas in which, in which economic evidence will play a role. Uh, but for the core, for the do's and don'ts, for, um, and for, to a large extent, for the designation process when it is about meeting uh, the criteria, probably little, because that's the raison d'etre of the DMA. If, if, if you bring back all the obligations in terms of economic evidence you have under 102, then what's the point in having a DMA? Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I imagine a scenario, though, where, where a gatekeeper says, here is my economic evidence, for example, to show that I'm complying with the DMA, and then I suppose the European Commission will have a will have a decision to make as to how, to what extent it's going to engage with that economic evidence, also thinking ahead about potential core challenges and the like. I mean, I, I imagine those are questions that at some point will need to be resolved. Well, when it will come to potential infringements to the DMA, yeah. then 
and that is clear, we will have to prove our case to the court's satisfaction. Um, economic evidence will play a role um, as well. Because I cannot imagine, I, I carve out the case of blatant infringement that, I mean, so I, I, I grant the, pl the large platforms, they're probably more sophisticated than that. So you have something that is not so obvious just at first look and you will have to dig into it. Actually, if it was not the case, we wouldn't need a hundred people. Yeah. So, uh, so there, of course, I mean, they will put their case, we will answer, uh, we will make a determination, and then at the end of the day, we will sanction them, and that sanction and the decision sanctioning them will be challengeable in court. Mm -hmm. So, from that moment on, that becomes kind of a normal case, uh, in my view. Okay, okay, very good. The I think it's fair to say that the DMA, uh, or that the EU really has set an example with the DMA in terms of legislating uh, the big technology companies. And we also know that other jurisdictions are still sort of looking at legislation and, and at potential similar solutions. Do you have any, any message for them, any suggestions or experience to share with friends abroad? Well, I, I don't think Anybody should try to teach lessons to anybody else, frankly, and certainly not fellow regulators. Um, and you know, for the DMA, foolishly, all legislators believe they were sovereign and they can decide whatever they want. And they're actually right. And just equally foolishly, the Congress believe that they can decide whatever they want, and they're also right. So, I mean, in democracy, people are elected to make rules. They make rules for the jurisdiction in which they are elected, and that's that's fine. Now, we are a we are a body with strong. I mean, not stranger to one another. I, we work with each other for decades, in particular the large jurisdictions, and uh, we take inspiration from each other. You know, when I started as a very young case handler in the, in the merger task force back in the early 90s, we had three colleagues from uh, the US FTC that were there to help us kickstart. It was immensely helpful. We gained years because we didn't have to reinvent the wheel and many things for each other. So all this we had a hundred times. Very simple. Do it like this. So... We have this, this old bound, um, and for the DMA, for example, it's no secret, I have extended an invitation to uh, the Americans to second, if they wish so, somebody into the DMA uh, um, <coughs> task force, and they have accepted. So we will have a colleague from the DOJ, at least one, maybe more, enforcing with us and asking, uh, acting as a liaison with Washington, of course, respecting confidentiality, waivers, no waivers, all the rules. But we intend to keep a close relationship with this. Whatever regulation they will have, or even if they do not have any specific regulation in the end of the day. Um, I think what is important 
is not whether we have different regulations or not. We will have different regulations because, as I told you, parliaments are so made that they will want to decide whatever they think is right for the jurisdiction. And it's, of course, their right. What would be important, and I think they will have due consideration to this, is that the various regulations are not so different that in order to comply with all of them, the platforms would have to um, split the way they operate between geographical area. That I think would be undesirable, but I don't think will happen. Okay, okay, very good. I, just to wrap up um, this question on the DMA, and looking ahead, but obviously the DMA is not fully here yet, but already looking ahead 10 years from now, what is your prediction? Will the DMA still be there and, and what will it look like? I think the DMA will be there. I think it will be there with an enlarged list of do's and don'ts. Maybe some will have disappeared. A number will have been added through experience. I think where you will see the biggest change will be in one or two enforcement in the platform economy because I think the DMA will shape differently the behavior of platforms and we'll see practices of a different nature of what we see now and we'll need to adapt on one or two enforcement. I think likely this is where you will see the, the biggest change. Because that's my view. Maybe you're completely wrong, but that's, that's the way I see it. We'll know in 10 years. Thank you very much for... I'll be retired in 10 years. Uh, that's the only thing that's certain. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. You listened to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrence. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrence website where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Laws and join the Concurrence group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.